You're listening to a download from the outdoorstation.co.uk. Number three eight seven. Hello and welcome back to number 387 with me, your host, Bob Cartwright. This is the second in the two-part interview with Jasper Wynne, where we discuss his 500-mile winter walk from Munich to Paris, which took place during November and December 2014. The premise of the walk was to replicate, 40 years on, the one undertaken by Werner Herzog in his book On Walking in Ice, where, for some reason, he decided to walk from Munich to Paris to visit a friend, Lottie Eisner, who had been struck down by a dire, horrible illness, in the hope she would still be alive, because he had walked from Munich to Paris. Yes, I know, totally bizarre, but that's Herzog for you. I wouldn't recommend it if you like travel journals, let's just say. It's the size of a pamphlet, it's completely off the wall, incoherent most of the time, and therefore, as you might imagine, it is classed as an introspective masterpiece which received a literary award. We pick this up as Jasper was reflecting on the distinctive difference that Germany and France have to walking for recreation or for travelling. There is, of course, more photos, images and links on theoutdoorstation.co.uk as well as the website associated with the walk, theslowadventure.com. It does actually make us reflect, um, us as in in the UK, just what an infrastructure we have with the maintenance of our bridleways and footpaths. The more that this experience you're having uh, is noted by people, the more they might appreciate what we've got, uh, certainly in this country. I think so. And I think they're probably, I mean, the Germans are great walkers. The French, not so at all. I saw very few French walking for anything other than a purpose in their mind. So lots of people foraging for free food, so effectively mushrooms at that time of the year for fungi. So many people out hunting. I mean, the great religion in, in the east of France, in rural France, is boar and deer hunting. And it was really, it was like going back to the Second World War. I'd wake up in forests. And there'd be lines of people I could hear in the distance with dogs just moving through. And then you'd hear a fusillated shots. Um, I, mean, I wouldn't say it was, it was frightening, but I did note that nearly everybody walking out in, uh, in rural France was wearing a high-vis jacket. Um, I mean, I've got some experience of, of shooting. And normally, you know, something comes out, one person takes one shot at it. But in France, it just seems like everybody has a shot at whatever moves. Um, so that was quite, uh, again, it, it was obviously such a huge cultural part of, um, of rural France was the chasse, the, you know, these great hunts, which it seemed to employ everybody, mm-hmm. either beating or actually out hunting or whatever. Some of them were just small groups of, of local men, very sort of parochial, if you like. Others were obviously great, massive commercial drives. Um, for, for for very well-off people, and that that animated every weekend. But then during the rest of the week, I could walk for hours on end and see nothing but cars. Germany was a bit different. A lot more people walk for leisure there, um, but still, compared to to, to Britain, um, 
Very few, really. I mean, I think it's the, you're absolutely right. You know, the, it's the symbiotic relationship between the amount of off-road walking that there is in Britain and the number of people who use it um, has created a very different landscape to walk through. Mm. Let's have a bit of a talk about the, the the aspect that I really wanted to get into, really, which is the the wild camping, because it's um, familiar over here with where we stand and, and what we can and can't do. And obviously, from a, a land access point of view, if you do know that if you're in England, generally, if you go onto a farmer's land, you've got a fair chance of him not being very pleased about it and approaching you uh, in whatever way. How was it perceived or how were you received doing what you were doing in the French and the, and the German side? Uh, are, are people fairly lax because of the, the environment that you were going through and they were fairly, um, nobody was really bothered about their, their, the land and you, you passing over it? Or because you were unusual and you were walking through, did it attract more attention from that point of view? I do a lot of um, wild camping and hole-in-the-wall camping and bivying. So I've got quite a lot of caution about it. I mean, it's, it's even um, even less popular in Ireland. There are, there are almost no places you can legally camp out in Ireland. And so one always either has to ask or one has to make very sure it's not found. And I do a lot of um, wild camping and uh, hole-in-the-wall bivying on long walks in, in England as well. So... I knew I was going to camp out every night, um, and I knew I was going to camp wild or just find a place to stay. Uh, I was very cautious. I don't think anybody ever stumbled across me um, on the whole in the whole month of walking. Uh, I always made sure I was well hidden, and all my stuff is green, and uh, uh, and I'm able to disappear into the uh, into the woods. But the other thing was. There are immense, immense areas of woodland in both Germany and in France. You've only got to walk off a path for, you know, even a couple of hundred yards, and you're hidden and lost for, um, to all to all eyes. Yeah, you know, even if anyone was going to pass. But I I started off being quite um, cautious about even letting people know that I was camping out. Um, uh, and then I realized, in fact, that nobody really seemed to care. Um, people rather assumed I was. And I, I never actually found out what the legal situation was, either in Germany or in France. But certainly the the general feeling from farmers, um, I, I suppose I always told people I was going to be walking on for another hour or two. So farmers always assumed I wasn't going to be camping on their land. So perhaps it's a bit of a NIMBY thing. But uh, no, I just would just keep walking and, until I found somewhere good. And I had both a hammock and a bivy. Um, so it was warmer down on the ground. Um, you lose a lot less heat. Obviously, you can pile up leaves to make a, a mattress or anything. And I was really worried about staying warm enough at night. I began um, with not enough kit. And I added a fiber pile um, fleece uh, to wear when I was sleeping as well. But I was still pretty on the edge. Um, especially on cold nights, especially up in the mountains. And if there was any wind, um, or if I picked a bad place in where there was a, a, when you get cold water pooling into a dip, then those extra few degrees down made the night miserable. Um, but then the hammock was fantastic if I was in wet ground, of which was a lot. I mean, several times I ended up sleeping in, in land that was so waterlogged that, um, that even if I stood there for a few minutes, I was you know, an inch down into the mud. Um, within a few minutes. And so then the hammock gave me this opportunity to just swing myself up above all the dampness. 
Um, and both of them are quite, they're quite low, low, low key, low visibility. So when you were coming through the uh, more populated areas, um, villages or, or towns, did the opposite happen? Did the the feeling of being um, tracked, as it were, and actually wanting to just get in and get out as soon as possible uh, came, overcame you? And, and certainly when you were, well, ignoring Munich, because obviously you just wanted to get out of Munich fairly quickly, but the closer you got to Paris, I presume, the more populated the area became. And uh, because obviously it's a sort of commuter belt, um, were you starting to struggle then finding places to wild camp? And, and did you sort of use the natural paths that were uh, shown on the maps or were you making your own way? Um, no, you're, you're absolutely right. There were some areas and it was getting towards Paris where it became more and more difficult. From Troyes on to Paris, uh, wild camping was harder it was much more difficult to find um, places. Not because it was so built up, um, not until I got very close to Paris, within the last 40 or 50 miles, but because the farming was much more intense. And um, there were less little kind of woodlands, little spinnies, little copses to, to disappear into. And people were still working the land quite often late into the evening. And that just makes the whole thing a lot more difficult. But I'd also, I suppose, had a lot more practice. I mean, every night I'd been finding somewhere to camp. And you, you, you must know this as well. Your, your, your eye tunes in. In fact, I'd even find myself sort of by late morning seeing a particularly good place and thinking, gosh, I wonder if we should stop now and just start really early tomorrow to make up for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and finding something like a hunter's hut up in the mountains. Um, or in Germany, there were occasionally refuges uh, which were open. And that just made all the difference. You know, those were luxury nights, knowing that you know, if it rained, I was still fine. I could stand up and, you know, and, and cook properly without having to squat up behind a tree. Uh, so it was real luxury to find any kind of a shelter like that. I did, um, I think break-in is a bit strong because they were all open, but I did sleep in a couple of barns in Herzog fashion. And I have to say, they weren't great nights because I was always worried about being discovered, and I just felt that it was going to test both my very poor German and my not-quite-so-poor French having to argue with a, or not argue, there was no argument, there was no leg to stand on, but having a discussion, a frank discussion with um, some irate farmer at five in the morning. Um, And then the very last bit, uh, that my last night out, I slept in a park right in the heart of Melun. Uh, It was a very foggy night, and I actually felt quite, because bad weather means people aren't out and about. Mm. The places you couldn't have slept during the summer a, because it's lighter, B, because people are out and about. I actually managed to sleep in quite safely and quite um, quite unbeknownst to anybody because it was dark at you know, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, and um, because the weather kept people indoors. Did I not read somewhere on your blog that um, you were somebody attempted to mug you somewhere? Was that in Paris or Munich? Oh, that was the very last uh, day in coming to Paris. I, I walked... Um, over just over 40 miles on the last day. And precisely for the reason you say is I couldn't see um, an obvious or easy place or safe place to camp once I was within the, uh, within the sort of the environs of Paris. Herzog also did the same thing. He walked um, 50 miles on his uh, last day and night. He just walked solidly for 30 odd hours until he reached the center of Paris. I wasn't quite that um, driven. Um, but I used the maps to find a slightly circuitous route 
that effectively followed the Seine right into the very heart of Paris to Notre Dame. And um, it was a long, long, hard day. I was tired. My, my, my shin had finally blown up. And um, I was just within probably 300 yards of Notre Dame, which was my nominal finishing point. And, uh, yeah, some, some guy tried to mug me. And I think to his huge surprise, he was quite a large guy. And I, I still wouldn't, I have no idea what he was thinking, whether he thought I was a kind of down and out, and it was just going to be fun to knock me to the ground and kick me around a bit, which would have been very unpleasant. Um, or whether he actually thought, yeah, there's a guy walking along, he looks like an easy mark, and he's probably got a camera and, and a few bob in his back pocket. Anyway, I think we, he hadn't reckoned with the fact that I'd walked 500 miles to get to Notre Dame. And I wasn't going to be thwarted in the very last 100 yards or 200 yards. And uh, it all ended surprisingly for everybody. Um, I did a keto a, a long time ago, and I was very pleased to find that uh, subconsciously I must have remembered a little bit from the classes. The muscle so, memory is good, eh? It's exactly that. I was actually talking to... Um, to the guys I, used to, I was last doing a keto with about that and saying, look, I haven't been practicing. I haven't done this for years. And he just said, yeah, but, you know, when push comes to shove, your muscle memory is there exactly as you say. And it was, it was just one, one nice straightforward move to knock his hands off my throat and another one to push him back. And it didn't, the great thing about a keto is you don't actually hurt the other person. So he didn't feel the need to come and beat me up. He was just very surprised. And, uh, so was I. <laughs> it's made it a very interesting end reading your blog, certainly. Um, one, going back to the mountains just briefly, when you cross those, um, we've just sort of glossed over it very very quickly, but when you cross those, did you take um, a sort of a mountain footpath over them or did you sort of take the more commercial thoroughfare, which was you know, close to the main road in case there were issues? No, I did uh... I looked at the maps, and there were long detours. I have to say that Herzog uh, and his journal, which I, I was still reading, um, not as a guidebook, obviously, and, um, and not even really to indicate the route, because I'd actually veered away from his route on numerous occasions for days on end, for, for weeks at one point, um, or for over a week at one point. But he had talked about going straight over the, the Schwarzwald, over the Black Forest Mountains. I looked at the map, um, and uh, I thought I could see a, a better route uh, than he took, because he started off into it, decided, in fact, it was easier to follow the road and, uh, and do a dog leg, and I thought I could beat him. And it was an interesting experience. I mean, was, I have to say, it was one of the, the nicest days of all. But... Once I got up into the into the mountains beyond Hornburg, um, I, I could see where I wanted to go, and I could find um, forestry tracks that were going roughly in the right direction. But they were then reached um, a, a deep um, contour line and just stopped dead or double right back on themselves. So in fact, I spent a very very happy day and a half wandering around in the Schwarzwald. And if I'd been on a walking holiday, as it was bright autumnal sun, and I found a, 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 a refuge that I could camp out in halfway across, I'd have been absolutely thrilled. But as it added probably another eight hours of walking and um, whatever that translates to in miles, uh, 
it actually discretion quite often on that kind of trip is the better part of valor. I learned the hard way that very often the dull, boring road, even if it uh, even if, if it dog legged or, or zigzagged, was invariably faster than going straight across country. It's sort of obvious, especially in Germany, that you know they've looked at every conceivable way from getting from A to B, and they'll have worked out the best way, the uh, the least effort, and then put a road there. Mm. Um, so I enjoyed that I, that kind of navigation, but invariably trying to shortcut across mountains always took me more time than just following the road, but it was much more pleasant, so I did it. The Outdoors Station is a free media entertainment service dedicated to the self-powered outdoors enthusiast. And so what what would you say you've learned most of all from doing this trip, having put it off for best part of 10 years, I guess, and and hoped to plan to do it? Now you've actually undertaken it, uh, even in the style you did sort of without all your technical equipment that you left behind in, in Ireland. What's what's the big thing that you've actually learned about it and how would you apply that to one of your next adventures? That's a really good question because I'm, I normally do these trips. You know, I sort of kayak around Ireland or I ride across South America on horses. And at the end of it, I, I actually haven't learned anything much. Um, and this was a surprising trip to do because in many ways it's not an adventurous terrain. It's, um, you know, it's, it's the heart of Europe at any point. I was probably never more than, oh God, even at the most remote place, I was probably never more than four hours of walking from, you know, as they call it, definitive help. Um, it wasn't like being lost in Patagonia or marching around in the Atlas Mountains. Yet, because of the season and because of where I was walking and the way I was walking, it in fact, in many ways, felt a lot more remote than, than other trips I've done. It was also very hard psychologically at times to keep going, knowing that, in fact, very often I was in a village, knowing I could just jump on a bus. It seemed a bit pointless initially. Um, so it was hard to keep going psychologically. It was such a random trip. And as I say, you know, on either side of me all the time, people were living perfectly normal lives and would have been astounded at the idea that somebody was struggling along cold, wet, and hungry. But what it did at the end of it I realized that um, that I both needed a lot less kit than I've ever carried, and I appreciate good kit a lot more than I did before. That, that, it sounds paradoxical. It was, a great, it was a great thrill to find that like millions of people all over the world, you don't need you know, the very best of boots or the very best of gear to do something. It should never stop one heading off on any kind of a trip. I mean, most of my stuff I got out of a charity shop um, uh, just before I left, and it was perfectly adequate. But what one does appreciate at the very same time is that when stuff is good, it really is good. Yeah, there's one thing that's been with me. It's a titanium mug, you know, one of the ones I'm, I'm sure that, uh, that you know only too well that people rave about. Gosh, what a great little bit of kit that is. Absolutely rock solid. And it was a real comfort knowing that it was going to be there every night to f- make soup with. I could put it on a little fire and it would burn up. Things like that. You know, some really good socks. Um, so just these little things, the comfort didn't make, yeah, I would have managed to get through if I didn't have those nice things, but they did make life a lot more comfortable. 
So I came up paradoxically knowing that I need less kit than I usually carry, but appreciating good kit far more than I ever did before. And so where does the, the whole story of the journey take you now? Uh, do give us the, the name of the blog so people can actually look it up in more detail and what you're planning to do with your journal. Well, they, I did blog um, on the trip. I've got a site called The Slow Adventure, which is um, using from everything from making walking sticks to the, the pros and cons of hammock camping all over the world. But it, it became the vehicle for um, pretty much a daily blog um, for the whole trip. And it's called theslowadventure.com. Uh, so there's, there's um, an account of the trip on that. It wasn't going to be um, a book. I, I was working on another book before I set off. Um, but that's been pushed to one side because I, I realized that uh, as I was walking, that not only um, was I able to um, reflect on the difference that 40 years had made between the time that Herzog had walked the trip and when I had walked the same route. But also, it had taught me a lot more about why I like walking. Um, I, Herzog seemed, because he was on a mission, seemed to have had a pretty miserable time of it. For him, it was an ordeal. I think he created an ordeal out of a lot of it. And I was wondering if that was going to happen to me. But in fact, I enjoyed, I would say, every day of the trip unreservedly every night of the trip there were a few bleak hours along the way and so i wanted to write uh, and i'm writing right now uh, an account of my trip from my journal at the same time which is really a kind of an antidote to of walking in ice uh, mine is on much more of walking in the sunny upland joyfully and it is a, a chance to have seen bits of germany and bits of france which why would one ever go there for any other reason? It had a random straight line took me through. And I like that kind of random uh, literature anyway. I like books about walking, so I thought I should um, inflict another one, add to the number. Mm. Well, we can only wish you well of that. And obviously, if people keep an eye on your blog site, they will be aware of when it uh, goes live, if that uh, comes in the near future. Um, as usual, I'd like to have a nice little question at the end to, to throw in. So let's try this one. Of all the things I could have asked you about your journey, what should I have asked you? Oh, that's a clever question. Gosh, uh, that's almost Herzogian in its, uh, its um, lateralness. Uh well, the obvious ones are, yeah, would I do it again? Uh, uh, which the answer would be no, but I would certainly do another similarly random trip. Um, what I think I liked about that trip was the essential randos, randomness of it. Herzog only walked to Paris because that's where Lottie Eisner was living when she was dying. And by the way, she did live for another nine years, I think, or even more after he got there, whether that was his... Um, his pilgrimage and intervention that made the difference, I don't know. But I did think, you know, perhaps if she'd been dying in Rome, it would have been a very different trip. Munich to Rome is about the same distance. Um, it would have been up over the Alps and then a rather joyful trip down through Italy. Um, it, uh, yes, I mean, if you were to ask me, would I do it again? Uh, the answer would be, well, not that trip, but I would happily and joyfully set off on another trip that was as uh, such a random thing. It was something, something you know, the, the dice man might have thrown up. Um, so, yeah, for that reason alone, I'm grateful to Herzog. 
for having proved the inspiration for something that I would never have done otherwise. Do you think the, the, the wild camping and the principle of wild camping and the association that it has with freedom, and in, in particular people that commute or used to commute on foot for work as well as pleasure, do you think that's, it's, it's a sad thing to see that slowly disappear? I don't know if the wild camping side is disappearing. I actually think there's quite a renaissance in that. I suspect that um, a lot, almost by definition, people are quite cautious about um, uh, saying how much they sleep out and sleep wild. And I, I quite often write about trips for journals and for magazines, for newspapers. Uh, and I'm always, I, I very rarely put into print that I wild camped um, a particular trip. Just because it's one of those things I think that one discovers for oneself, it doesn't help to publicize it. So I think there are actually more people, I think you must know as well, you, you must know a lot of people who are clandestinely wild camping left, right and center. And if one's good at it, nobody ever knows. Um, I think what's much more um, depressing really is, as I was saying, that the fact that the car now is king, the number of people who drive to go on a walk. That's what I liked about this, the, the, the nuttiness of walking from one capital city to the next, um, not following a particular trail. A lot of the walking was dull and boring. It was the kind of walking that people have done for millennia, since, he, since humanity became bipedal. And um, I liked that. And it was an act of, it felt like an act of civil disobedience. There was plenty of enthusiasm for me, if I was walking on some uh, marked trail, because that's what happens. You mark a trail and people drive there and they walk around it, often for days on end. But the idea that you might just walk from one place to the next was gratifyingly upsetting for quite a lot of people. And gratifyingly, it would seem inspiring to some people. And a lot of the, what I'm writing about is the reaction that um, telling people I was walking to Paris uh, from Munich, how how that affected people, the kind of people who who warmed to that idea, and the kind of people who drew back and felt it was some kind of well act of civil disobedience. I should have been on a car or using some kind of um, motorized transport or on a train or something like that. So I, I like that idea, and I think that's that's probably what's threatened more than wild camping. Wild camping is per se. Um, frowned upon, so therefore we're quite good at it. Whereas walking is is being shunted into this leisure only activity. And gosh, you know what a great leisure activity it is. But there's nobody out there I could see who is just walking long distance unless they're they're particularly bizarre. Um, unless they're somebody like Werner Herzog for his own bizarre reasons, or somebody like me for my own bizarre reasons. In in this particular trip, I take it, and you certainly haven't mentioned it, so I presume you actually didn't meet any other people that were wild camping for whatever reason, leisure or otherwise. No, I, I didn't meet anybody else at that time. And that was, as I was saying earlier, was a factor, not of the landscape, but of the season. As a, as a, I used to do a lot of um, uh, trips when I was researching transhumans, you know, the moving of cattle or goats or sheep or whatever it is, up and down mountains, which happens all over Europe, all over Africa, all through South America, all through Central Asia. Worldwide, people have been changing their seasons by going up and down mountains with their stock. And this was something like a, a similar kind of transhumans. It was the same landscape, 
But in November and December, it was a completely different world to if I'd been walking in June or July. Then it would have been full of people. There was all kinds of infrastructure there for leisure walkers that just, you know, when it's raining and miserable and the nights are long and the days are short, just isn't used. So just creating an adventure, a spirit or a feel of adventure by changing when one walks, that was exciting to find that one could still get find a very different, um, a, a challenging Europe just by going at a certain time of the year. Hmm. Well, Jasper, it's always good to talk to you. So thank you very much indeed for taking the time out of uh, your writing to to give us the uh, behind-the-scenes story relating to this. And I wanted, did want to speak to you at this time of year because people would remember uh, what it's like being a bit wet, cold and miserable and obviously undertaking uh, a trip like this in this kind of weather because we're surrounded by it at the moment. So it's been fascinating to, as you say, hear a modern-day adventure not exactly where you would expect it to be. Good, was very good talking to you as always. You can hear more from Jasper Wynn and one of his previous adventures on podcast number 341 and 342. His books are far more entertaining and informative than Herzog's, and I'm sure if one comes out of this adventure, it'll be much easier going. Jasper was hoping to come to the lightweight outdoor show we're organising in Malvern in uh, April and meet ourselves and everybody else, uh, but sadly he won't be able to make it. Uh, he's uh, otherwise engaged on the 25th, which is a great shame. It would have been fun to watch him get all excited by all the lightweight kit he'd be surrounded by, like a kid in a sweet shop. However, that's not to be, unfortunately. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please do feel free to drop me a line at uh, our email address, info at theoutdoorsstation.co.uk, or leave a comment on the Outdoors Station website or, on, of course, on the Facebook group. So, until next time, folks, ready for our next Wild Camp Challenge. And then, of course, the one after that is with Mr. Book of the Bivy himself, Ronald Turnbull. So, we've got a quite an exciting couple of months ahead of us. Until then, take care out there and bye for now. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To hear or see more from our extensive free library, please visit theoutdoorstation.co.uk.